it's historically been a top-down system. Renewables in particular have mainly been connecting to the distribution grid because it's been smaller capacity and it's been easier to integrate that way. What that's done for the grid in the UK is that it's complicated the model that it normally uses to transport electricity. Hi, I'm Dean Somerville. Welcome back to Energy in Conversation, the podcast that takes a look into our energy future through the eyes of people leading the way. This season, we're featuring young energy professionals on the podcast as part of our Generation 2050 initiative. They'll be the industry's leaders in 2050 when the world will look very different from today. On this episode, we're talking about the electricity grid with two brilliant young professionals and our very own Energy Institute president, Steve Holliday. Steve is the former CEO of National Grid, which here in the UK both moves electricity around and keeps the grid balanced. Low-carbon electricity will be a vital piece of the future low-carbon energy system. We already use it for lighting, cooking, powering our electronics, and lots more. And we're set to use it even more for things like heat and transport in the future. What's tricky about electricity is that it's difficult to store large amounts for long periods of time. So the organization in charge of the electricity grid must constantly work to balance supply from power stations and other sources with demand from homes and businesses. If the flow of electricity is not kept stable, it can trigger parts of the system to shut off to prevent damage to the grid, which can then cause a blackout. As we'll discover in the episode, there are lots of ways to make the grid more flexible so that it can respond quickly to changes in supply and demand and maintain its stability. For those of you new to the subject, I'll mention a few more basics before our guests dive into the detail. In countries with traditional grid systems, electricity is delivered from large, centralized power stations through the transmission system, which carries electricity long distances at high voltage. Once the electricity is closer to consumers, it enters a distribution system where its voltage is lowered and this links up to our homes and businesses. The organizations in charge of these systems are called the Transmission System Operator, or TSO, and Distribution System Operator, or DSO. You'll hear all our guests mention these. Our guests discuss how grids in Europe currently work, the new energy sources and technologies that are changing how things will operate, and what this could mean for energy consumers like you and me. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everybody. I'm joined today by two young people who are going to talk about the grid of the future. I'm Steve Holliday, the president of the Energy Institute and the former chief executive of National Grid. So this is kind of a question I think I know the answer to. We've talked for years about how the energy systems are changing and democratizing as renewables come on. And there still is an awful lot of conversation about what does the grid of the future really look like? I'm delighted today to be joined by Ariana Maria, looking at it as they begin their careers. and They've got some in- interesting insights into what the grid might look like in the future. Why don't you both introduce yourselves, if if you would, and tell us a little bit about the job that you've got at the moment. So I'm Ariana Almeida. I'm a business consultant in the area of energy and blockchain within IBM services. So I work with several different clients in designing scalable business networks and in general advice on innovative solutions that support the energy transition and the transformation of the energy ecosystem. So my name is Maria Carmona and I'm a project manager for Vattenfall Networks UK. Our main business is that we own and operate electrical infrastructure to connect our customers to the grid. That can be anywhere on the grid, but it's mostly focused at distribution level, which is where most residential and industrial applications lie. 
Um, and then Vattenfall as a wider group is a Swedish energy and utilities company. So how did you get into that job? Just give us a little bit of your background, how you started and, and how you've ended up in that quite exciting new space, Maria. So my background is actually in physics, in astrophysics, to be precise. I have always been very interested in the STEM subjects. Once I finished my degree, I thought, where do I want to apply myself? And I do very passionately think that climate change is the number one topic of this generation, this century. It's going to be at the forefront of everything that we do in the coming decade, 50 years. Networks and grid was sort of a very good intersection between my technical background in physics and the actual infrastructure that supports all of our energy needs. So Ariana, the same question to you actually, just give us a bit about, about your background and how you ended up in IBM doing this. So I come from a completely different background to Maria, actually. I'm an economist. I grew up in Venezuela, so I had always been aware, but also intrigued by the significance of the energy sector and the influence it had in the dynamics of the world economy. Also in particular, in the transition that we have now in the energy space. I was always very aware for the need for this transition to be sustainable, right? So it needs to be feasible from an economic technical and societal perspective. And to me, technology was a key enabler of this. So that's why I joined IBM about five years ago now. Since then, I've been working with uh, different clients in the energy space to work towards a, a smarter, more reliable energy system. Back to you, Maria. I do remember the stats in the UK on girls doing physics at A-level, actually, which is just appallingly low. Over half the secondary schools in the UK didn't have a single girl actually studying physics at A-level. When you were studying physics, if I may, how many other females were there in your physics year? I think there was a 70 to 30 percent split between men and women. I mean, it was pretty unbalanced, but it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. Where it really hit was on my way to university getting a lot of people saying, are you sure you want to do physics? That's a man's degree. And also actually joining the workforce, especially now that I'm working on larger projects that are very mechanical engineering. There are a lot of men and I'm sort of the only woman in most of my <laughs> meetings. So yeah, it is it is very present. You know, is there anything more that the energy businesses ought to be doing on that front, do you think? Yeah, I think it's it's really tricky. I think the best representation I've seen explaining why that happens is called the leaky pipeline. So it's basically this concept that actually there's a lot of girls that will be interested in science when they're in school, but then sort of different you know, societal aspects or maybe their parents will start discouraging them to do it for whatever reason, because yeah, it's, it's a man's thing. And then they'll slowly keep dropping out. Then you come to sort of university and maybe you're expected to do something that um, perhaps a man won't or you don't get the same support. Um, and then even when you go into the workspace and you've you, you have, let's say, 10, 15 years into the, the industry, you become a mother and then your company isn't able to support your, your needs and give you flexibility. And so you feel like you need to go away from, from the industry. So it's a very complex phenomenon. I don't think it's one that's sort of um, unique to energy, but I would say because it's a universal problem that everyone is going to have to tackle in this coming uh, century, I think the onus in the energy industry is to really focus on empowerment of 
you know, female leadership in the space, getting that perspective and putting women in senior roles that inspires young girls to come into the industry. And also it brings about conversations that might not happen if these women weren't in those positions. Your example is fantastic. There's just so many opportunities to fall off the ladder, aren't there, all the way up, which I, you know, I've seen all my career to a great extent. If you haven't got a role model, it's really quite hard. So you're both involved in the grid of today and the future. So for someone who's listening who isn't an expert on, on the grid system, how would you articulate the grid that we've got today and, and the sort of general direction that, it, that you think it's heading in? So the way I see it, the grid is basically the infrastructure that gets you your energy source as a normal consumer so that you can put on the lights, you know, put on your kettle, everything. And it's historically been a top-down system where you've got these really big power stations operating at the top of the different voltage levels in the grid and they have huge huge capacities normally I mean we're talking gigawatts of capacity and they basically produce electricity that gets stepped down to lower voltage levels that reach you eventually but also businesses industrial applications etc so that's sort of the traditional way that the grid has worked in the UK but recently it's becoming a lot more distributed and that word comes from the distribution grid which links up the transmission grid at the very top and the supply of electricity at the very bottom. Renewables in particular have mainly been uh, connecting to the distribution grid because it's been smaller capacity and it's been easier to integrate that way. So what that's done for the grid in the UK is that it's sort of complicated the model that it normally uses to transport electricity throughout the country because it's not coming from top down, it's coming from middle, going a little bit to the bottom, going a little bit to the top, staying in the same area. So it's sort of difficult to deal with from an operator point of view, which is what National Grid does. I always used to try and describe this to people as the road system and say, what's the National Grid? Well, it's the motorway system, but the big stuff is, and then you get all the A roads and the B roads, and you go right the way down to some pretty bumpy lanes at the end of the spectrum. And, and you're right, we've got some, uh, some generation that's connected to some, uh, some B roads at the moment that has been, has been causing some congestion problems for sure. And then, I guess you've been working on, on some international things as well as just the UK. Have you seen any big differences that would argue with the description that Maria has just given? So indeed, I've, I've worked with clients all over Europe. Um, I myself am based in the Netherlands and I work closely with the transmission system operator uh, here in the Netherlands, that would be Tenet. So essentially, it's pretty much the, the same concept, right? Uh, the way that the electricity system um, works, it's, it's a large interconnected network of both supply and demand side assets. Um, and as Maria pointed out, we're seeing a, a shift from large centralized assets towards smaller uh, and more decentralized assets. Um, and this is a balance that we need, to, we need to manage at the grid level. As we think about the systems of the future, and you hit, the, I think, the, the key point, Maria, about this, this concept of the big things cascading downwards, and now we're getting supply coming in in the middle and cascading up and cascading down, predominantly cascading down at the moment. I often wonder whether, whether it's almost going to um, invert things and reinvent history, where if you go back 
you know, in lots of the Western world, systems were very distributed and local. And then some smart Alec decided to join them all up and put the motorway system in place. But whether we now invert it on its head almost, and although the motorways still exist, actually, the predominant flows are local. And, you know, I, I guess that's one of the things that you're working on, Ariana, is, it, is, the, is the technology to allow that to happen? Yes, partially. Um, the technology to work both at the high level, transmission level, but also connecting it with the, the requirements, let's say, at a local level and how you manage um, a much more local grid. So, so Maria, I mean, you've been thinking a bit more about the distribution end of the business, I guess, in, in terms of some of the networks in the UK and the connections coming in here. So what's your forecast for just how important the distribution bit of the business is, is going to be in terms of balancing in the future? I think it's going to be really important. I reckon there's going to need to be a lot of coordination actually between that middle bit in the networks, the distribution and the transmission at higher level. Um, I think touching on what Ariana said, distribution networks have a huge role to play in dispatching local services, local flexibility services. Some aspects of it really, really matter from a regional point of view and then other aspects of it are more constant um, at the national level. And those are the ones that the transmission system operator will need to be very cautious of. There's a lot of pressure from a cost point of view, actually, to reinvent a little bit the way that um, this flexibility and this stability is being managed. Um, and I think there's a lot of room for the transmission system operator to reach out to market and reach out to the distribution networks as well to see if there are new methods of dealing with the grid that it's not um, you know, considered before that can actually be a lot more cost beneficial to the entirety of the network and to the consumers ultimately because whatever costs are incurred in, in balancing the grid is reflected in our bill to pay the electricity. What's an example of a new service that you think might be predominant in the future? From a grid stability point of view, National Grid in the UK is trying out new routes to market that they've aptly called pathfinders that are going to be really interesting, actually, because large scale generation provided for free that element of stability to the grid. And now that it's going to be removed in the next decade, the grid is a lot more vulnerable to unfortunately, the intermittency of wind and solar. I think that that's a huge challenge from a physical point of view. The systems and processes that we've got are kind of outdated in the sense, because every time you want to put something new in place on the grid, you know, there's a consultation process, there's a regulatory process to go through, and the whole thing takes about a year and a half. And by the time you get to the end of it, well, there's another more urgent problem. I think the Pathfinder initially were trying to try out a few things without going through all this palaver of reviewing and asking, let's try something, let's get some feedback. If it works, then we can create a product afterwards. I can't see any other solution, actually, in a world where the problems are occurring as different sorts of generation are connecting in different places. You just can't sit back, can you, and sort of put um, a scenario in place and say, I can I can predict exactly what we're going to need in 2024. So let's start to do it. That's what is so exciting about today. It's sort of an awful lot of uh, uncharted territory, isn't it? So what's the big project that you're working at this very minute? Day to day and over the past two years, um, what I've been working on is designing together with my client uh, tenant in this case, a blockchain-based platform that connects distributed energy resources, in this case, electric vehicles, 
and home batteries to the systems of the transmission system operator to enable these uh, devices to provide flexibility services so that the transmission system operator can tap into these devices to balance the supply and demand of the grid. Blockchain is a technology that would take at least another episode to properly explain, but in essence allows for transactions, energy or financial or otherwise, to be easily tracked by participants, giving transparency to a complex system. Check out the links in our episode notes for some good explainers on the topic. For the purposes of the future electricity grid, the folks running the grid will have to keep track of an increasing number of different assets, like wind turbines, solar panels, electric vehicles, power lines and pylons. So having an IT system that produces a clear, real-time, shared record of relevant information could be very helpful. A blockchain system, like the one that Ariana is working on, could be used to pay bills, do metering, control electricity flows, and much more. So how do you do it? How do you define the business model behind this? How do you actually technically integrate from the device, which is the very lower end of the grid, all the way to the high voltage transmission system? Blockchain. Now, there was a sort of a, a buzzword of three, four years ago, where, where blockchain just appeared to be in every conversation. It was going to be the solution to almost every technical problem that the world has. And it seems to have gone a bit quiet. You still see it as a, a critical part from a technology point of view? The work that I've been doing with Tenet, it's a blockchain-based platform. Blockchain together with uh, other technologies is actually going to play a key role in enabling coordination between TSOs and DSOs, also between old and new players within the energy ecosystem, enable these different parties to come together in new ways, share data, and allow them to get better insights and result in a more efficient grid. These kind of technologies don't necessarily need to replace the more traditional systems, but rather they work in coordination with. It's about providing transparency, you know, Im immutable data from the different sources. And it's what enables TSOs and, and to a certain extent DSOs as well to extend towards more decentralized energy assets. And it allows for that layer of trust that could perhaps be lacking in traditional systems because you have visibility of the individual device you have the traceability and the immutability, so you can trust that the information that you're getting from these small distributed assets that are usually operated by independent parties, that they are providing the services that the TSOs and the DSOs expect them to provide. So Maria, what's the big project that you're working on? Since I've started at Battenfall, my day-to-day -day has changed quite a bit. I started looking at design elements of the grid, working with business development to see what a client wants from a connection, and then basically checking that from an engineering point of view, the connection is sound, it makes sense, it's got contingency in place, really focusing on energy security. I also did quite a lot of work on what do we need to do as an operator to digitalize our operations, minimize people actually coming in to substations and looking at things because that is not safe most of the time and we want to avoid that as much as possible. Lately, I have taken on the role of project manager, which is really interesting because my day-to-day -day actually covers a lot of different areas of this project I'm working on. And it's, um, you know, having oversight on some technical aspects of a, a plant, essentially, that we're designing, the stakeholders involved, what do we need to do internally to, to pass this project through certain gates, 
to, to get, you know, bits of budget, etc. And then, yeah, just generally, what are the barriers that we need to be looking at to deliver this project in the time frame requested by the client? Most of the time when you're talking about even a small plant, there are so many elements involved in actually coming up with the idea and the concept to building it and then making sure that you're delivering the energy service that you built it for. So that's been really, really interesting. So Ariella, I've had lots of conversations with over the years about your organisation. Why are you in this space? You know, are you looking for software opportunities? Are you going to be an aggregator of some kind? How would you answer that to a customer? I'm going to come in as a consultant and give you a whole bunch of advice. Got that. There's lots of talk about technology companies moving into the energy field. I mean, even the Googles of the world and the Amazons and others, you know, coming into this area because they're doing great things themselves. But, you know, can they bring their tech skills to handle some of these enormous issues we've got. What do you think about that? The way I see it, uh, technology is an enabler for the energy industry. Um, so the role that I see um, IBM and companies like IBM in this space is is in designing together with our, our clients technologies that, that work for the energy sector and that address the needs that the different players have, right? So we work together with the ecosystem as a whole, from transmission to distribution, retailers, generators, to make sure that we have a more efficient energy system. On the one hand, it's, it's working to find and design the solutions that work for the ecosystem as a whole, but at the same time, looking for ways that we create the standards for the energy industry to move forward together. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge issue, isn't it? It's standard, the EV charging, for example, and everything else. Costs on consumers are just huge otherwise. The energy issue is amazing if you go back in its history, because of course it was oil and gas, you know, and today less than half of the professionals who belong to the Institute work in the oil and gas industry. Awful lot of those are transitioning, I would argue, in the next five years as well into other things. But when you sit down in the young professionals network and just do a round table about who do you work for, it's kind of a tech set almost today, isn't it? I don't know what the stats actually are, but I suspect way more than 50% of people work for organizations and companies that are now what I would call new energy companies. One of the things that's always concerned me about our industry, actually, is whenever anyone asks a question about something, the, the answer always starts off with, it's very complicated, but, which has always annoyed me because you kind of want people to try and simplify things, don't you? But the sort of world that we're talking about here just sounds even more complicated, doesn't it? So, Maria, what's your view about how much consumers, A, need to understand and, and how much, B, are going to be active in the world of the future? That's really interesting question and it's obviously one that I ask myself because obviously I'm a consumer too we're all consumers certainly in in the UK there's been quite a lot of buzz around consumer-led initiatives like smart meters rollout putting in smart appliances as well that can manage certain aspects of of the grid or at the very least passively interact with the grid by coming on at different times than expected I think consumers need to understand better how their grid actually functions because the amount of people that I've met that I've sort of tried to explain where their, you know, kettle electricity comes from and they're like, wow, what? So you're saying that, you know, all of these actions happen in the space of microseconds so that I can turn on my kettle at the same time as 500,000 people. So they definitely need to understand more about the network. I suppose at, at a local level, understanding what options 
you have to contribute to the grid as a consumer. And that is something much Vattenfall identified through um, something called IDNOs here in the UK. So independent distribution network operators. That is an initiative that was created uh, to increase competition within the distribution networks in the UK, but also so that distribution companies could cater more to the needs of their customers in terms of what do you want your connection, your grid to look like? Do you want it to be very sort of risk-free, hands-off and will take care of things? Do you want to have more of a role to play in how you manage your, your grid? Do you want to put in smart elements in it? And that is something that can be enabled through companies like IDNOs, giving customers more flexibility about their grid. That's where I see consumers in the UK certainly moving. It's an interesting space. Of course, the Climate Change Committee reckon that over 60% of the actions that are required to get to net zero are going to require much more active participation from consumers in a world in which today consumers are extraordinarily inactive in this space. And I often think about, well, well localism probably is part of the, the answer to that in a sense. People identify with things that are more local. They're parts of the UK, which is a small place where the nearest generator is miles and miles away. You know, you've got no idea where it comes from, have you, to a certain extent. That is, is a big challenge. Is the same conversation going on in the Netherlands, Ariana, in terms of, you know, what consumers are going to be doing in the next 10 years? Absolutely. In the Netherlands and more broadly, I think it's very clear also in the European clean energy package, the role of consumers in the energy transition. So indeed, we're seeing this shift of consumers towards more prosumers, and that has to do with the choices that they make. For example, if they switch towards electric vehicles and the kind of appliances that they buy for their home, if they decide to install solar power and you know, backup batteries in their own home. Unlike a consumer who only consumes energy, a prosumer both consumes and produces energy. This means that they not only take electricity from the grid, but they also add some electricity back to the grid from sources like solar panels on their roof or their electric vehicle battery. Prosumers could be helpful in balancing the grid if the right systems are put in place. So there is this shift from consumers towards prosumers that is important to keep in mind. And there will be a certain, let's say, level of education that will be required towards consumers in enabling this kind of interaction. And that's, again, where technology plays a role, enabling this participation in the other direction. So prosumers contributing towards the grid, but in a way that is effective towards the energy ecosystem as a whole. There is a lot of knowledge and, uh, let's say, expertise that goes into how a grid is being managed. And at the end of the day, the, the physics of the grid doesn't change, right? So uh, whatever solutions we design to enable the prosumers to participate in the electricity ecosystem needs to take into consideration those kinds of constraints. Yeah, it does. I'm a bit of a skeptic, I have to say. You know, I talk about this myself as the three of us are today. And then I look at other parts uh, of the world we live in, the general apathy of, and I'm talking about myself when I'm saying this too, not others. I want to buy a car. I choose the car. It sits in the garage or on the drive, wherever it is. I want it to work when I switch it on. I want its little computer to tell me when it needs a service. I am not the least bit interested in anything else about it. Whereas when I was 17 and bought a car, I quite like getting things out and playing with it. Today, do anything to do it. It's a box, needs to just go. And, and there are a lot of things in our lives like that, aren't there? We were talking before we did this about, about the internet and the stability of it. You, you're not really interested in all the routers and the meshes in your house you can get to do it. You just want it to be better, don't you? 
So I worry that we're kind of a species today that quite likes the answer, doesn't necessarily want to get overly involved in how it gets here. And yet, you know, we're talking about we're going to need people to be more active. So I must admit, I'm a bit sceptical about just how real that is going to be in the the future. Well, at the end of the day, it all has to do with choice, right? Um, And indeed, we need to have the choice of you know, just requesting a service that is delivered to us and that's it. But if we do have the choice of being more active participants in the electricity ecosystem and consciously doing so, because I think that's also the the change that we're seeing, there's increasing interest to, to participate in the solution towards the climate change problem, right? So, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, it is indeed a matter of choice between the, the two, two ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I guess that's the answer, isn't it? You can't, you can't force people to do you know, things that they're not going to do, but you have to facilitate those that can. So Maria, you get your crystal ball out and have a, have a little look. Ten years ahead, what are going to be the big differences on the network system in 10 years' time versus today? Yeah, that, that's a really huge question. Certainly from a technical point of view, I think the grid is going to be much better equipped to receive renewable energy into the grids. As I mentioned before, I suppose physically the main challenge about renewable energy is that it's not always windy, it's not always sunny. The grid has been designed to get its input of electricity from a stable source at a certain frequency, something called base load as well. So I think the grid is going to be much more technically sound to cope with it and it's going to be much more capable of a faster transition actually in 10 years time. I would hope that there is also more grid, just not in the UK, just everywhere in the world, actually connecting people to an energy source. Climate change is affecting us all. All parts of the world will have different challenges to deal with with their grids. Here, it's very much sort of a legacy issue that we're dealing with primarily, but then there's also this question of, there's still 800 million people in the world that don't have access to energy. Is that going to be fixed even a little bit in 10 years that's where i'm really really skeptical to be honest we could go on for hours today couldn't we but we haven't even touched on 800 million people who haven't got access to electricity you're quite right of which of course the vast majority in in sub-saharan africa as well so that's a whole different problem i guess we're going to need a very diverse set of skills for the future as opposed to just pure traditional engineers aren't we ariana I think really it's important to have a combination of the technical skills required or the kind of infrastructure that we're working with. As we mentioned, the the physics don't change. Engineering skills are still going to be very important. More and more, we see a significance in the kind of um, IT skills, more related to, to digital technologies as well, also supported by good understanding of the economic, but also the, the regulatory aspects of the energy system as a whole. Just to come to close here today, I, I'm sort of half retired these days. I often think, God, I wish I was just starting too, because I, I made a choice to join the energy industry over 40 years ago, and it was it was a brilliant career choice. I've had fun the whole damn time. And if I had that choice again right now, it'd be even easier, I think, because of all the reasons that you talked about. It's just so much going on. But if you were in my shoes in 30 years' time and looking back, you know, what would you like to be able to say about your career and what you sort of presided over? I'll start with you, Ariane, if I can. Well, for me, if I would look back on my career, what would I want my legacy to be? It's focused around enabling the business models that are more inclusive and fair with the right incentives to to participate um, and to enable this just transition that uh, we had been talking about, right? So it's not only about 
switching towards uh, more renewable energy, a cleaner energy ecosystem as a whole, but also a much more inclusive one where we could have a more broad access to energy for a larger part, if, if not all, of the population. That's brilliant. Maria? 30 years is in some ways a very long time and in other ways nothing. It's like a glimpse. So certainly in terms of my career right now, I'm really interested in the grid aspects of, of the energy system and I think I'm going to continue to be so for a while. I would like to see my efforts in the grid and network space sort of a tangible impact on not how much renewables but how quickly we can intake renewables into the grid, but also, yeah, touching on that fairness aspect that Ariana mentioned as well, I would very much like to sit in meetings regarding uh, the grid and networks where I am not the only woman by far, and that there's actually a wide mix of, of professionals at dif different seniority lev levels and that have, you know, a bunch of different perspectives to bring. To me, that would be a great indicator of success when it comes to the energy transition is actually seeing that diverse workforce, like you mentioned, Steve, um, actually coming together and working on solving these challenges together. Yeah, thank you. Just applaud those answers, I think. I'd even go further. I don't think we will fix the problems unless we get the diverse thought processes in here because they are complex. It's great to have an economist and a physicist slash engineer here because it's going to take economists, it's going to take physicists. It's going to take people who understand people as well, thinking about the behaviours that we're going to need. You know, we're going to need an awful lot of skills in here. And uh, my goodness me, I certainly hope that this industry looks a lot more diverse in 10 years' time than it, than it did 10 years ago. It's heading in the right direction, but a bit like the transition, it still feels it's a little bit too slow, isn't it? It's been a fantastic joy for me. Thank you so much. It's just a great pleasure to meet you both. Thanks for your contribution today and uh, good luck in everything you're doing. A big thank you to today's guests, Maria Carmona, Ariana de Almeida, and Steve Holliday and a little disclaimer that the opinions they expressed here are their personal views. To find out more about our guests, or if you'd like to explore resources about electricity grids, visit our website, energy-inst.org podcast. You can also find out more about our Generation 2050 initiative. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch by tweeting to at Energy Institute. And tune in next time when we'll find out about how the net zero target is affecting the world of finance. Energy in Conversation is brought to you by the Energy Institute. This episode was produced by Martin Begley and Daniel DeVeza. Music is by Jack Keeney. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. Thanks for listening.